And I want to be cognizant of the time, and I want to. I don't want to keep you here forever and ever and ever because somebody's going to get up and walk away, and then you're going to know who who it was I was talking about earlier. So I'm going to try to save them from having to do that. But uh, you know the story, the parable, the wise man that built his house on the rock, the foolish man that built his house on the sand. The Bible says, and when the stream arose, it, it kind of indicates that there must have been a flood. When the flood came, and, and, and I believe it's the King James Version that says, and when the stream beat vehemently against the, the foundation, that which was built on a rocks withstood. That which was built on the sand did not. And if you ever been to the coast or maybe even some places around here on a float trip where you had a sandbar and you made a sandcastle, anybody ever done that? Anybody ever made a grand sandcastle? I mean, not just one of them little ones, but I mean, you spent some time on it. You, you built it, and it looks beautiful, but it doesn't last. Foundations are important. In fact, I would tell you that you can have the most beautiful edifice in the world, the most beautiful building, the most beautiful home, but if the foundation is wrong, you're going to regret it later. I, I've, I've just dealt in my life with too many broken foundations. There, there's a, a, a entire buildings that have been condemned because the foundation was faulty. But if the foundation is strong, then it can withstand the onslaught of anything. It's amazing when you look at some of these things uh, in antiquity, uh, buildings and houses and roads and, and aqueducts and all of that that were built, some of them thousands of years ago, and yet they still stand. It's because the foundation was strong. There is, and I, I want to introduce a series tonight. I, I plan to do it on Sunday mornings as the Lord allows, but so it would have been this morning. And I thought about doing what I was going to do tonight, but I, I cannot escape it. There are, and it must be in our life, an understanding that we better have a solid foundation when it comes to God's Word. We've, we're living in a day and age in which the, the world and all of its, its, its onslaught is trying its best to chip away at the foundation of the Word of God. It's chipping away at the morality. It's chipping away at the, the foundation of family and life. And, and so because of that, we better make sure we have a strong foundation. If you don't have a strong foundation, the Bible teaches us that you will fall. And so for the next few weeks and maybe even going into March, when I'm preaching, on a, especially on Sunday mornings, I'm going to preach to you about pillars of the apostolic faith. There are things in life that we must make sure that foundation is settled. Things that we cannot change, things that we cannot go back and 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 uh, try to try to redo. I, I've I've been to some places where they tried to rebuild and and so they took some of the foundation away so that they could add on, and it just doesn't work. You better build on a strong foundation. And the first pillar that I want to bring to you tonight is the pillar simply called God. You better get God right in your life. Nothing else matters. If you don't have the right foundation of God himself, salvation is useless. Worship is useless. Your life is useless. God first. We've preached that. I believe that. But I want to take 
it, it with you uh, a little bit. We must be built on a solid foundation. And I'm first going to build it on the foundation of God himself. I don't have time to get in this. And you're going to have to just trust me. And you're going to have to go read it for yourself. And later on I'll be able to, to flesh it out more. But if you would... Uh, read your Bible, and especially in Revelation chapter 13. You will find that one of the tenets of what is going to happen at the close of our world is a, a, a uh, bringing together of a one-world government and a one-world religion. I have, for all of my life, that as long as I can really remember, I have heard people talk about that. I have heard different prophecies when it comes to what we call end time prophecy spoken I, I, I've, I've heard people mentioned I've, I remember and, and, and I don't make fun I'm not, I'm not this is just how I was raised I remember uh, growing up in the, in the cold kind of the end of the cold war era with Gorbachev and, and all of that and I remember preachers preaching that he was going to be the antichrist and they, they had different reasons why he's past that scene other people have come I, I can't tell you all of the ins and outs. I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not dare uh, gonna stand by the pulpit and try to tell you when God's coming back and and, and give you all the details because I don't know that. In fact, the Bible tells me this in the Book of Acts. It's not for me to know the times and the seasons that the Lord has provided. But as I as I grow, there is one thing I see. I see that perhaps the greatest attack of 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 God and of His Word is this, let's just kind of combine everything under one umbrella. Let's just mix it all together. Let's, it really doesn't matter. Let's have tolerance. Let's just love everybody. Let's love everything. And listen to me, I will be the first to tell you, I want to be a peacemaker in my life. I don't argue a whole lot. Try not to, at least. I try to love, I try to see the silver lining and everything, I try to find the common ground, but I'm telling you the longer I'm alive and the longer I read this word, I'm beginning to realize that the Bible has quite a lot to say about the church of the living God being very careful that you don't erode the foundation of the word in order to be like anything else. And so while today, at least at the beginning, some things I want to just bring out may seem a bit harsh. I want you to realize that I do it in love. I, I'm not trying to, to just, you know, throw people under the bus or call people out. But the Bible does say mark those that, that, that take the wrong view of the Scriptures. Back in, in, in 2015, there was an article that I was reading, and it... it, it quoted Robert Mueller, former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, and this is what he said. We have brought the world together as far as we can politically. To bring about a true world government, the world must be brought together spiritually. What we need is a United Nations of religions. That was back in 2015. 2019, February the 8th, just a few days ago, in Charisma Magazine, an article by Michael Snyder, he wrote this, and I'm curious if any of you even heard of it, because none of our, our media that I could find, uh, our, our, our big media followed it, but a historic interfaith covenant was signed in the Middle East on Monday. 
The mainstream media in the United States have been mostly entirely silent about it, while Sheikh Amid al-Tahib is considered to be the most important imam in Sunni Islam, arrived at the signing ceremony in Abu Dhabi with Pope Francis hand-in-hand and a symbol of interfaith brotherhood. But it wasn't just a ceremony for Catholics and Muslims. According to a British news source, the signing of the covenant was done in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other faiths. They signed, the Pope and the Grand Amman signed a historic declaration of fraternity calling for peace between nations, religions, and races in front of them. They arrived and they signed. According to the official Vatican website, there was a great amount of preparation that went into the drafting of this document. It encourages, and I quote from the document, if we believers are not able to shake hands, embrace one another, kiss one another, and even pray, our faith will be defeated. He said, the Pope explained that the document is born of faith in God who is the father of all and the father of peace, and it condemns all destruction, all terrorism from the first terrorism in history, that is, of Cain. Perhaps that in and of itself would be okay. But it seems like there's a lot of language in the document about peace. But it goes way beyond just advocating for peace. For over and over and over in this document, you can read it, the word God is used to simultaneously identify Allah and the God of Christianity. For example, let me quote, We who believe in God in the final meeting with Him and His judgment, on the basis of our religious and moral responsibility, and through this document, call upon ourselves and upon the leaders of the world, as well as the architects of international policy and world economy, to work strenuously to spread the culture of tolerance and living together in peace. To intervene at the earliest opportunity to stop the shedding of innocent blood and bring the end of wars and conflicts and environmental decay and moral and cultural decline that the world is presently experiencing. And on top of that, it also proclaims boldly the diversity of religions. Let me read again from this. Freedom is the right of every person. Each individual enjoys the freedom of belief, thought, expression, and action. That's true. But this is what just begins to get me. The pluralism and diversity of religions are willed by God in His wisdom. Friend, that's wrong. God never designed there to be a plurality of religions that view God in different ideas and lights and tents. The Bible says this, and I'll probably quote it again, but let me say it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It is not the will of God that there are hundreds of different religions in the world and they're all acceptable. It is not the will of God that you can read the Bible and come up with 15 different ways of what he says. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all, through all, in, in all, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. I'm telling you, you better understand the day in which we live. The day in which we live says let's just lump it all together much like you, you can take them. Um, I, I, I know there is a perfect science when it comes to colors, okay? It's amazing how the colors go. But the, the, the science and the philosophy of colors uh, fades in the reality of it. And what I'm trying to say is you can, any of you that have ever done paint before, now you can take blue paint and yellow paint and you make green paint. And you can take 
red paint and blue paint make purple paint. But the more you start just throwing that paint in the bucket, it's going to pretty much come out to one color you don't really want. There's a limit to how much you can just throw everything together, lump it all together and try to get something out of it that matters. And I'm all for unity and I'm all for peace. But I'm going to stand on this pulpit. I'm going to stand on this word of God. I'm going to stand as a pastor, a husband, and a father and say, I cannot be unified with untruth. I cannot be joined with just any old God. I must believe in one and only one God. And the only way I can do that is to follow his word. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. He just was. He just is. I don't know where he came from. In fact, I don't think you ought to even try to figure that out because if you do, your mind's going to explode. Any of you ever work on computers and you, you pop one of those little capacitors or whatever it is and it just goes pop and a little bit of smoke comes out? That's what's going to happen if you try to figure out where God comes from because he was before the beginning of time. He is throughout time and he will be still when time ends in the beginning. God, this God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Let me give you Brandon Buford's version of that. This God is everywhere at all times with exclusively all power in heaven and earth and knowing all things. He cannot be limited to one place or time. The God transcends time, space, knowledge. He is God. There's not a place in any of the universe that God is not at. You can't get beside him. You can't get in front of him. You can't get behind him. You want to know why? Because he's already there. When the Bible says, when I believe it's in the book of Isaiah, when it said, uh, I am God and beside me there is no other, that wasn't an arrogant God saying that. It was a God that says physically and physics says there cannot be someone beside me because I am everywhere. And if somebody is beside me, that means I'm not there. Physics says two objects cannot, oper- uh, cannot exist in the same space. That's what physics tells us. They can be really close, but they're not in the same space. But God defies physics because he says, I am everywhere at all times with all power and with all knowledge. This God, the Bible tells me, I'd I'd love to just read every verse I've got, but let me just read a a few of them and then I'll, I'll jump through a bunch of verses and you can go back and listen to it and read it and find it in your own Bible. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived from since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Let me tell you, you cannot see God. In fact, the Bible tells me this, no man has seen God. I'm going to explain that here in a moment. Colossians 1.15 talks about the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17 says to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Hebrews 11 and 27 says that Moses chose to leave Pharaoh who he could see to follow a God who was invisible and he could not see. This invisible God that knows all, sees all, and is all and everywhere. He has chosen throughout the time, every once in a while, to allow a small glimpse of his glory to be seen. The the theologians would call these theophanies. It's small parts 
Just it's Moses seeing the backside of God or the hinder parts of God. That and that's just one way of man's description trying to explain how they saw a tiny part of God's glory, the God who fills the universe. It was a smoking lamp that walked through two halves of a sacrifice for Abraham. That smoking lamp, that was the only way Abraham could describe, I saw a little bit of God's glory. It was Jacob wrestling with the angel. I know we say he wrestled with God, and you're right, but that wasn't all of God. He just saw a theophany, a part, a piece, a glory of God. It's, it's Moses and the burning bush. It's the pillars of fire and the pillars of smoke that, that led the children of Israel. And there's other ones I could go. It's, the, it's Ezekiel's wheel in the middle of the wheel. It's, it's Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. But it was up until Moses' meeting with God in the burning bush that God had not truly ever identified himself. It was just known he is God. I mean, when you're Adam and Eve, you really can't say there's another God out there because you walked with him in the Garden of Eden. When Cain and Abel came and there's only four people in the world, it's kind of hard to go split it up and get your own idea. You're too close to what the reality of God is. But through the generations, mankind in their continuation of their sinfulness and the generations that that began to come had slowly separated God from his truth and turned them into lies. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and I'm going to hit this quick. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteous of men and it begins to say they knew God but they didn't honor him as God. They became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. They thought they were wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and birds and creeping things. They they worship or, or they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. And so God said, I gotta get reunited with man. And so a burning bush, I preached about this uh, just recently, but that burning bush came and God revealed a little bit of his nature to a man named Moses. He was trying to get things back in order. He was saying, man, they've gone too far. They've forgotten what I am. They've forgotten all that's happening. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so Moses, let me tell you a little bit about me. I am that I am. I've said it over and over, but the Johnny James said this, an old preacher of the gospel that I grew up with. I am that I am means I am who I am. I is who I is. I will be who I will be. We call it Jehovah or Yahweh. It was a small glimpse of this God. God throughout time revealed aspects of himself through descriptions. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, I probably should have started here since it's my title, or my text rather, but Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, the King James says, God who at sundry times in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. The English Standard Version that I like to use says long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. All throughout the Old Testament, there were glimpses into the glory of of an unlimited God. The most common word you'll find in the Bible is Adonai. It's simply translated Lord. 
at most of your Bibles, especially if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice that Lord, many times in the Bible, even though it's it, it, it's kind of an all uppercase, it's not quite the same size as everything else, it's a weird font, but it'd be all uppercase. If it's like that in your Bible, that's where it, it, it's, it's translated Lord and it's talking about God. If it's talking about a Lord of a kingdom or something like that, it'd just be a normal Lord, no, no uppercase all the way through. But they, they also, and I, I'm going to do this quick. I've said this before, and some of you have heard it, but those of you that have not, Genesis 22 and verse 14 gives us a little glimpse. He called him Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. In Exodus 17 and 15, they said he's Jehovah-Nisi, the Lord is my banner. In Judges 6, 24, Jehovah-Shalom, the Lord is my peace. In Ezekiel 48, 35, Jehovah-Shammah, the Lord is there. In 1 Samuel 1, 3, Jehovah Tesboath, the Lord of hosts. In the book of Psalms, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, it says Jehovah Eloha Israel, the Lord God of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15 and 29, Netza Israel, the strength of Israel. In Isaiah 1, 24, Abar Israel, the mighty one of Israel. In Exodus 15, 26, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who healeth. In Psalms 23, 1, Jehovah Roha, the Lord is my shepherd. In Jeremiah 23, 6, Jehovah Tiskanu, the Lord our right Righteousness in Leviticus 20 and 7, Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. In Genesis 1 1, Elohim, eternal creator. In Genesis 14 19, El, Elion, the most high God. In Isaiah 40 and 28, El, Alam, the everlasting God. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, El Shaddai, God Almighty, little glimpses into a great big God. Oh, I could go on and on and on. I've got over a hundred different ways that God was described. Let me give you a few. They called him the wisdom, the word, the glory, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the vine, the bridegroom, the alpha, the omega, the savior, Messiah, rose of Sharon, lily of the valley, day star, bright and morning star, fairest of 10,000, lion of the tribe of Judah, lamb for sinner slain. And all of these give you a small glimpse into a great big God. The entire biblical understanding of God is wrapped up in that emphatic statement I said earlier, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Earlier we opened up with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, but we would do good to keep reading that, for it goes on to say this. Long ago in many ways and many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And this is the most important part. You've got to catch it, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and he makes purification for sins and he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there was a few things that it said. He is the express image of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. But I just told you earlier, there is no beside God so you can't physically sit beside a God who's everywhere. 
When you read in the Bible and it says by the right hand, it's it's describing a place of power, not a literal place for a God who is everywhere, does not have room for anything to stand on his right or his left. The phrase describes the God's glory and God's power. And I want somebody to listen to me right now. When I begin to talk about Jesus Christ, I am not talking about somebody different from God, but I am talking about the divine radiance of the glory of God. He is the imprint of God. Jesus is the only way you and I will ever get a glimpse of who God really is. God said, I'm tired of just giving you little glimpses here and there. I'm tired of hinderpart sights and smoking lamps, but let me once and for all give you the only way I can. He still can't show you all of his glory. He can't. Because if all if you saw all of his glory, you would explode. You'd go crazy. You couldn't contain it. So the Bible says that the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily in Christ Jesus. And I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's delve into the fact that Jesus is the glory of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you keep going on in verse 14, and it says, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For it came time that God wanted to reveal Himself and reveal His glory, and God became man, was born of Mary, in Bethlehem and they said you shall call his name Jesus it couldn't have been all of God in a sense I've told you that God didn't die on the cross can you imagine a world with three days without a God can you imagine the void that would have been left if they could have taken all of God that exists in all of the universe and put him somewhere in a little bitty tomb but it was that God said I'm going to reveal myself to you I'm going to show you who I am. And this is going to go into part two, which, which the next pillar is the pillar of salvation. And the only way you can talk about the pillar of salvation is to talk about the why God said, I've got to be manifest in the flesh. There's a whole reason. We have to, you have to wait. You have to wait till another day for that one. But I want to read to you some verses. They should be on the screen behind me. If you've got a paper Bible, this is one of those places you better open it up, grab a pen, knock somebody beside you and say, give me a pen, do whatever it takes because this is one of those places you need to be writing this stuff down. If you've got it on your phone, you need to be writing these verses down because this is what it describes, the glory of God. That Jesus Christ is the glory, the revelation, the revealing of God himself. For 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Go back and read John chapter 1. Has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge. Watch of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus, you see the glory of God. When you behold Jesus, you see God. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Let, let's, let's read this in, in kind of its entirety. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if 
I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you will know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, oh, let me help you out. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And if you would have known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, wait, 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 Jesus, I thought the word of God says no man has seen God. I know, but if you've seen me. This is why, this is ultimately, other than the fact that, that it was fulfilling the curse of Satan and, and the redemption and the atonement, but this is ultimately why Jesus was crucified by the Jews. Because they couldn't figure out how Jesus could say, if you look at me, you see God. It blew their mind. It's why when Jesus was on trial and they asked him, they said, are you God? He answered simply, he said, I am. And it wasn't, I am God. If you translate that out, he said, I am that I am. The same words that proceeded out of the burning bush and they tore their hair out and they ripped their clothes out and they punched him and they spit on him because they could not understand how in the world the one standing in front of them could claim, I am God. But he said, if you know me, you know my father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. This is what Philip was saying. Are you ready? I want to see God. I've walked with you, Jesus. I know you've eaten and you've, you, you, you know, you, you, you've walked and, and, and I, I've seen you. You, 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 know, you, uh, you get hungry. You get thirsty. I've watched you cry. I've, I've watched all of that. I want to see God. And Jesus said in verse 9 of John 14, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen, the, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show me the Father? Don't you believe I am in the Father and the Father in me? And the words that I speak, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and he goes on to say whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do and if you ask anything in my name this I will do if you ask anything in my name I will do it because if you see Jesus you're seeing the glory of an invisible God Colossians 1 chapter 12 says this Let's give thanks unto the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now watch this, verse 15. He is the image of an invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that everything he might be preeminent. And somebody would say, how can this be? Because I remember when he was born. I mean... I know how time works. If you were born today, you weren't there yesterday. So how in the world could you begin to say that, that this Jesus was before all things and created all things? It is not telling you that God stood up in heaven and crossed his fingers and said, I don't want to work today. Hey, Jesus, why don't you go make earth? That's not what it's about. 
because there's not room in heaven for anybody else. But what it's telling you is when you look at Jesus Christ, you're seeing the image of an invisible God. It's the glory of God revealed for in verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's what the book says. It's, it's 1 Timothy 3 and 14. Because I've heard it all my life. I don't know why you can preach on this. You can't know God. He's a mystery. I wish you'd read your Bible. Because the Bible gives the answer to the mystery. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. If I delay, you may know how to, you ought to behave in the household of God. Now watch verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I agree. It's kind of hard to describe God. I, th- I think, and I don't, I don't mean this in any arrogance, I just, it's kind of like the, the Bible says, I know in whom I've believed. To make that statement is not an arrogant statement. Because if you're standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, you're going to be okay. So, so you know, I, I kind of know what I'm talking about. I'm not being arrogant. I, I know that, that, that I'm, I'm preaching right, but... Even with everything I've got, i got 26 pages of notes and they're pretty deep. But even then, it pales when I try to describe God. But Justin, every once in a while, I think i got it all figured out and I, I've got all these verses and I know what the verses says, but then I sit back and go, what a God. What a God. So yeah, there's an element of mystery of godliness, but this is what the Bible says. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then it goes on to tell you what the mystery is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, seen of angels, proclaimed unto the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. It was God's revelation and revealing. It's, it, it, it goes on, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. That's the whole reason God said, I'm going to reveal myself through the man Christ Jesus. It's because I had a purpose that started all the way in the, in the, in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden right before they left that Garden of Eden. I pointed my finger at that ugly old snake named Lucifer and I said you may thought you have won the battle but you will not win this war because there is going to come forth out of the seed of a woman one in whom you might be able to bruise the heel but he's going to plant his foot firmly on your head and he's going to crush your head. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? The sting of death or sting of sin is death. But God has delivered all of that. We'll talk about that when we get to salvation. I'll get ahead of myself. And so how is it? What is it that Paul said, everything I gained, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, everything I gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The only thing that matters in my life, this is what Paul said, the only thing that matters in my life is knowing Jesus Christ. Why? Because if I have seen, if I have touched, if I know Jesus Christ, I've seen the revelation of this invisible, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God. And I want to be found in him. It's, it's Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 16 says, I might have that wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that I might know the hope which he called me. 
that I might know the riches of his glorious inheritance, that I might know what the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us that believe and the working of his great might. That's what I want to know. It's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. That God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love wherewith he loved us, that even when we were dead and trespasses made us alive together with Christ, for by grace we are saved. That I know him. That I know him. It's the glory of God. I want to go back for a moment to that mystery of God. First Timothy, great and without controversy. Let me skip to the King James. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. Here's the mystery. You ready? The mystery is how can the completeness of God dwell in the completeness of humanity? How can a 12-year-old boy walk into the temple and say, this is my temple? The only reason that 12-year-old boy named Jesus could go in there and confound the elders and confound the people is because the only reason it was his temple is because he was God manifest in the flesh. This was his place. How in the world could, could, could he, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Colossians 2.9, I've already read it, but I'm going to read it again. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. doesn't say that Jesus was in the Godhead. It said that the Godhead, which represents the power and the authority of God, was in Christ Jesus. The answer is this. Jesus is the revealed glory and the revealed image of an invisible God. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God manifest. I was reading in... It, 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 it just kind of began to grab hold of me. If you read the book of, of Acts chapter 7, Stephen has been called into service and, and, and he, he, he works, he, he, he waits on the, the widows and he does all that and, and, and just so anyone will understand that if you'll serve God in those capacities, if you'll serve God in when it's not all that glamorous and all that great, but there's a great need, he sees it. And after that, it also says that while Stephen was waiting on the widows and making sure the church was doing good, he was also preaching and there was a great revival that was going on at the same time. And then Jesus, or, or, or he, he's brought into the courtroom. And I challenge you, go, go read Go read the book of Acts chapter 7. Go read Stephen's last sermon he ever preached. Watched how he talked about God Almighty. They were so mad at him. Acts chapter 7 verse 54. They were enraged. They ground their teeth. They gnashed their teeth. He stood there in the midst of that street full of the Holy Ghost the Bible says he gazed into the heaven and he saw the glory of God Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They stopped their ears. They cried. They rushed him. They stoned him. And as they were stoning him, he said, Jesus, receive my spirit. And right before he died, he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. 
Again, could be a little, if you read it quickly, you'd say, well, man, what did he see? Did he see several up there? Did he see multiple thrones? No, no, no. He saw the glory of God, Jesus. I'm going to get to this a little bit later in, in my next one as I'm going I'm to bridge the gap between this pillar of God and the pillar of salvation. And so when I preach on the pillar of salvation, I'm going to bridge a little bit of this. But just a, a real simple, just a real simple, and it's so deep. My goodness, I wish I had a whole nother s- service to preach just on this. But if you read the first chapter of Revelation, John, the writer of Revelation, says, I saw Jesus. He was like the Son of Man. He was still kind of, if you will, in a bodily form. He, he looked like the man that John had known. And really, if anybody would know Jesus, John did. This is the same John that would lean his, his head on Jesus' shoulder various times. It's the one that was inseparable from Jesus. I mean, there's only one or two or maybe three times in the Gospels that Jesus was really alone. Most of the time, John was right beside him. And so, if anybody knew Jesus, John did. And at the beginning of Revelation, he saw Jesus and he recognized him. He looked like a person, but he had a radiant power. The Bible says he was white as snow. His eyes were like fire. His voice sounded like many waters. And John began to realize something. I had walked with the man, Christ Jesus. I had walked with the one that, that, that got tired and had to take a breath when they walked a long time. And he got hungry and he ate. I walked with him. I saw him do miracles. I knew there was something different. But now on this island, Patmos, I'm beginning to realize fully that the one that I walked with has now entered back into heaven. And I'm seeing the glory of God. He described him later in the book of Revelation. He said this, his eyes were a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. And he had a vesture and on his thigh it was was written King of Kings and Lord of Lords and God said there beside me there will be no other and when John looked up into heaven he saw Jesus sitting on his throne and now he had a different look because the glory of God shone round about him it was Philippians 3 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection Stephen not only knew the suffering of Christ But when Stephen, right before he died, he got to see God. He got to see Jesus truly as he is in the power of his resurrection. And so it is that if you'll get God right, everything else gets built on that. Ephesians chapter 3. Now I like this verse. I try to code it right, but I always get one of it wrong, so I'm going to read it. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. What is that power? Well, Jesus told you what that power is. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Go into Jerusalem, but you shall receive power. After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you'll be witnesses. You'll get that power. Why was they going to get that power? Because Jesus said, I have to go away. i got to go back to heaven. See, I'm, I've just been able to give you a glimpse of heaven on earth. But that's not enough. Jesus said, I've enjoyed my time here. I've, I've revealed, I've shown you the glory of an 
limitless God. That's why, is it, the, is it the book of John, I believe, that ends and it says, even though I've written all these miracles, if I had all the paper in the world and all the books in the world, I still could not write enough to contain everything that we've seen. It's just a glimpse of the glory of God. Jesus walked out of that tomb and he looked at Mary and he said, Mary, I gotta go away. The next time you see me, I'm gonna come on clouds of righteousness. And the Bible says on that day, we'll see him as he is. And for that day, when I stand on that shore, when I stand with eyes and arms lifted, I will finally be able to see a God that I have hereto never been able to fully describe or never been able to fully comprehend. But he gave me a little glimpse because he said, I'm going to give all the glory in the Godhead and I'm going to put it in Christ Jesus and I'm going to let him walk and I'm going to let him die and I'm going to let him be buried. But he's going to rise again and he's going to secure for you your salvation so that one day you can see him in the fullness of his glory. That's why when you start reading Revelation, it starts changing. In that city, there is no light because he's the light. I can't quite understand that. It tells me there's many mansions. At the very least, one of the translations says there's many rooms. How does that light go through all the rooms? I don't know, but he's God. I'm going to see that throne and I'll just, I'm going to just help you out. Are you ready? When you get to heaven, you're not going to see Jesus the way you think you're going to see him. I don't know what your vision of Jesus is. I don't know if it's a long-haired hippie of Da Vinci's paintings. Please don't think that's what Jesus looks like. It's like some pansy. I mean, at the very least, think of a one who walked and worked in carpentry and I don't know how you envision Jesus, but most of our visions are wrapped around some sort of a body. We want to see him with at least two arms and two legs. And that's okay because that's how he revealed himself. But when you get to heaven, just be ready for your mind to be blown. Perhaps that's why there'll be 30 minutes of silence when we get there and we start seeing him as he is and then we realize that we are like him. He brought creation full circle. He brought perfection for a circle. But you got to get the God right. So I end it this way, and I'm, I bring it all back. I can't just serve any old God. I, I can't say that the God of Allah and the God of the Hindus and the God of the Muslims, I, I can't say that's the same God I serve. Because the God I serve has been revealed. And they said, and you'll call his name Jesus. I'm not being ignorant. I'm not trying to put divisions. But I'm here today to tell you there's only one God I serve. And he's revealed himself to me. And I want to know him in the fullness of his suffering. And in the glory of his resurrection. And his name is Jesus. God Almighty. Would you stand today? Oh, there's so much more I could say. I still got pages and pages and pages.